Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 397 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Counting up to episode 400. And now, Skylab, The Astronauts, Part 2, Owen Garriott and Ed Gibson. Continuing from the previous episode, we were about to begin to talk in detail regarding Skylab's three scientist astronauts. I want to start with Owen K. Garriott. Garriott was born in Enid, Oklahoma on November 22, 1930, very close to the cutoff date for his group of astronauts. He was a Boy Scout, earning the rank of Star Scout, and graduated from Enid High School in 1948, where he served as senior class president and was voted most likely to succeed. Garriott earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering from the University of Oklahoma in 1953, where he was a member of the Phi Kappa Psi fraternity. He was also the elected president of his senior class. Since he had earned the degree on a Naval ROTC scholarship, he was required to serve in the Navy from 1953 until 1956, as an electronics officer. After completing his tour, Garriott continued his education, earning a Master of Science degree and a Ph.D. from Stanford University in Electrical Engineering in 1957 and 1960, respectively. After completing his Master's degree in 1957, Garriott was seeking a research topic for his Ph.D., he was inspired by the beep, beep heard round the world after Sputnik was launched on October 4, 1957. Most of the graduate students and professors in the radio propagation laboratory listened to the signal sent back by the Soviet's artificial moon as it orbited the Earth. Garriott's official topic was Propagation of signals from orbiting satellites through the planet's ionosphere. After earning his Ph.D. from 1961 to 1965, Garriott stayed 
at Stanford to serve as an assistant professor and associate professor of electrical engineering. He performed research and led graduate studies in ionospheric physics and authored or co-authored more than 45 scientific papers, chapters, and one book, principally in the areas of physical sciences. Owen continued to follow the space program, and his interest grew. After Alan Shepard became the first American in space, Garriott then realized that there could be an opportunity for astronauts with research backgrounds in the space program. Planning ahead and hoping, Owen considered what might give a candidate an advantage if an astronaut opportunity ever occurred. Garriott decided to act on a long-held ambition to earn a pilot's license. So, when NASA decided to seek applications for scientist astronauts, Garriott was ready and waiting. Garriott recalled, quote, In May of 1965, I was waiting, hopefully, for a decision from NASA as to whether my life might undergo a major reorientation. I was teaching a class at Stanford University and coming up on the end of the quarter when a call arrived from NASA wanting to verify that I would be available for a telephone call later that day. Yes, of course. But I also had a lecture scheduled later in the afternoon, so I asked the secretary to whom the call should come to to alert me for a call from NASA and to be sure and let me know about it. But if I was giving a lecture, just come to the door and signal hand to ear that a call had arrived. Naturally, the call came in the middle of the lecture. Sally signaled as planned, and I decided to complete all or most of the lecture and call them back, not knowing for sure who was calling and not knowing what the decision might be was more than the usual distraction. But I returned the call in 15 minutes or so and apologized profusely for being unable to come to the phone immediately. Al Shepard did not seem concerned and provided the hoped-for question, Would you like to come to work for NASA as a scientist astronaut? Again, Yes, of course started the brief exchange. A quick telephone call home alerted the wife and we waited for an official announcement because I never felt certain of selection until NASA had made some public commitment. End quote. Garriott's first flight was the Skylab 3 mission in 1973, which set a world record for duration of approximately 60 days more than double of the previous record. Extensive experiments were conducted of the sun, of earth resources, and in various life sciences relating to human adaptation to weightlessness. His second space flight was aboard STS-9 with Space Lab 1 in 1983. 
This was a multidisciplinary and international mission of 10 days aboard Space Shuttle Columbia. Over 70 separate experiments in six different disciplines were conducted, primarily to demonstrate the suitability of Space Lab for research in all these areas. He operated the world's first amateur radio station from space, W5LFL, which expanded into an important activity on dozens of shuttle flights, Space Station Mir and the International Space Station, with scores of astronauts and cosmonauts participating. Between these missions, Garriott received a NASA fellowship in the Space Station Project Office. In this position, he worked closely with the external scientific communities and advised the project manager concerning the scientific suitability of the space station design. Garriott held the distinction of being the NASA astronaut with the earliest obtained Ph.D. degree. Having earned his Ph.D. from Stanford University in 1960, Two years before, Robert A. Parker, who obtained his Ph.D. from Caltech in 1962. Garriott was an extra-class amateur radio operator holding call sign W5LFL. On December 1, 1983, he made the first amateur radio contact from space using a Motorola handheld two-meter radio while on board STS-9 Space Shuttle Columbia mission. Returning to Skylab, Garriott was famously involved in the Skylab stowaway prank. On September 10, 1973, controllers in Houston were startled to hear a woman's voice beaming down from Skylab. Capcom Bob Crippen was co-conspirator in the prank. Here's Garriott's account of the episode. One of the things that uh, I always thought was interesting uh, was a uh, sort of a, uh, a game that we played with ground control, which they can't do very often because they're so alert and, and knowledgeable about everything that's going on. But uh, uh, this story started two or three months before I flew. And at that time I made a recording uh, with my then wife Helen's uh, recording on it as if she were visiting the Skylab for a visit. And that uh, she was coming up there to uh, bring us a, a, a home cooked meal. And so uh, uh, it required a little bit of cooperation from the ground. And so I had several people on the ground who were knowledgeable about what I was going to do and they were expecting me to let them know, and so they were going to play along with this game when I mentioned it. So I, I knew when Bob Crippen, whom I'm sure you've already talked with, uh, was going to be on, I said, uh, maybe 20 minutes before this started when I was passing over a ground station, because we did not have continuous contact back in Skylab days, said, I'll have something special for you on the next uh, trip. And so Bob knew exactly what I was talking about and said, Roger, he's got it. And so uh, when uh, we, 20 minutes later, came back in contact with the ground, this female voice 
came on the, uh, re the radio channel. It was a proper radio channel, so they knew it wasn't coming from something that uh, was done locally. It was done actually coming down from space, saying, well, I, I just came up to bring the boys a, a home-cooked meal. And that took them all back by surprise. Uh, Bob Crippen had a sh short little uh, two-way conversation that he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. So Bob participated. He he'd actually he'd had that, re uh, uh, that contact, that discussion, already pre-planned on a sheet of paper. And so he pulled out a sheet of paper before I got in contact, reviewed what he was supposed to do, put it back in his pocket, and she was all prepared when we came around and this female voice came across the, the radio uh, channel and said, I have a home-cooked meal for the boys. And so uh, that only lasted a couple of conversations back and forth, but it uh, certainly surprised the ground. And they never figured out what we had done. How in the world did this female voice come down from space on, ra on the radio channel? And so uh, uh, I didn't tell them how it was done. And actually some 20 years later, I asked the ground controllers who were still with NASA, did you know what happened then? They said, no, we never did figure that out. What was going on? And then I told them after 20 years uh, how we had uh, done this trick. And so um, I always thought that was an interesting uh, gotcha. As you know, uh, astronauts frequently get gotchas every opportunity there is. And this was a gotcha that we got on the ground, uh, one of the very few occasions on which we really had a chance to uh, uh, provide a story that they had no idea how it came about or where it was headed. The controllers in Houston heard Garriott's wife say things like, the boys haven't had a home-cooked meal in so long, I thought I'd bring one up. Then she described forest fires seen from space and the beautiful sunrise. She said, oh, oh, I have to cut off now. I think the boys are floating up here toward the command module, and I'm not supposed to be talking to you. Continuing on. After leaving NASA in June of 1986, Garriott consulted for various aerospace companies and served as a member of several NASA and National Research Council committees. From January 1988 until May 1993, he was vice president of space programs at Teledyne Brown Engineering. This division, which grew to over a thousand people, provided payload integration for all space lab projects at the Marshall Space Flight Center and had a substantial role in the development of the U.S. laboratory for the International Space Station. Garriott accepted a position as adjunct professor in the Laboratory for Structural Biology at the University of Alabama in Huntsville and participated in research activities there involving new microbes he returned from extreme environments such as very alkaline lakes and deep sea hydrothermal vents. Other research activities included three trips to Antarctica from which 20 meteorites were returned for laboratory study. During his life, Garriott received the following awards and honors. National Science Foundation Fellowship, 1960-61. Honorary Doctorate of Science, Phillips University, Enid, Oklahoma, 1973. NASA Distinguished Service Medal, 1973. Federation Aeronautic International, 
V.M. Kamaroff Diploma for 1973, the Octave Chanute Award for 1975, and the NASA Space Flight Medal, 1983. The three Skylab astronaut crews were awarded the 1973 Collier Trophy for proving beyond question the value of man in future explorations of space and the production of data of benefit to all the people on Earth. He was one of five Oklahoman astronauts inducted into the Oklahoma Aviation and Space Hall of Fame in 1980, the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997, the Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame in 2000, and the Enid Public Schools Hall of Fame in 2001. Garriott was presented an honorary doctorate of science from Phillips University in 1973. Now, a little bit about his personal life. Garriott married Helen Mary Walker, his high school sweetheart, in 1952. They had four children, Randall in 1955, Robert in 1956, Richard, born in 1961, was a computer programmer, and the creator of the Ultima computer game series, and Linda, who was born in 1966. After he divorced his first wife, Garriott married Evelyn L. Garriott, who had three children from a previous relationship. Garriott's son, Richard, was launched as a space tourist on board Soyuz TMA-13 on October 12, 2008, the first American and the second person worldwide to follow a parent into space. Owen Garriott was in mission control at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan for the launch and was in attendance when his son returned 12 days later. Garriott died on April 15, 2019, at his home in Huntsville, Alabama. Despite all his accomplishments, Garriott was occasionally asked if he was disappointed in not having a chance to go to the moon instead of only into orbit around the earth. This was his reply, quote, No, and if given the choice of only one or the other, I would pick two months on Skylab. Why? There are several reasons. First, that is where my background training, electrical engineering, physical science research on the Earth's atmosphere can be of most use. In fact, all scientist astronauts have found that regardless of their backgrounds, what the scientist astronaut job most requires is the skills of the scientist generalist, someone who thinks like a researcher and has broad enough knowledge and experience to interpret what he sees. I would like to think that I fit the role of the generalist placed in a position to work with world authorities in several disciplines in the conduct of their research. Secondly, all of us in the astronaut office had a marvelous opportunity to travel the globe with world-class geologists studying principally volcanic regions thought to resemble conditions on the moon. We all greatly enjoyed these geology field trips. 
I also realized that the pilot astronauts with whom we traveled were excellent observers and keenly interested in the research objectives of our instructors. For the three non-geologist scientist astronauts, I believe we would have been hard-pressed to do any better job than the pilots while on the moon's surface. Whereas we might have had a modest advantage in Earth orbit with many disciplines to represent. And finally, there is the issue of personal satisfaction. World record durations. Working in several fascinating disciplines more suited to my background. More time for reflection and camaraderie all made a Skylab mission the first choice for me. End quote. All engines running, we have a liftoff. How many of you would like to fly in space? Oh, good. How many of you would like to sit on top of millions of pounds of explosives? <laughs> Controlled by millions of parts. Each one coming below the lowest cost government supplier. <laughs> Edward G. Gibson served as science pilot of Skylab 4. For his heroism and duty to his country, Edward Gibson is inducted into the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame. I was fortunate enough to be on Skylab, our country's first space station. Now, like many missions that we've had since then, we travel a good distance. In about 84 days, Jerry Carr and Bill Pogue and myself traveled about 35 million miles. But when you run the numbers, you see that it takes light just three minutes to go that same distance. And yet it takes light over four years to reach our nearest star. Clearly, when it comes to space travel, we have just barely put our collective toe out the front door. Edward George Gibson was born in Buffalo, New York on November 8, 1936. From ages 2 through 8, Gibson battled the disease osteomyelitis, which is soft spots in bones, and spent many months in and out of hospitals. Fortunately, newly available penicillin cured the disease. To strengthen his leg that was nearly amputated, Gibson took up sports like swimming, football, and track. He primarily used swimming to strengthen his leg. He was active in the Boy Scouts of America. He earned the rank of first class. Gibson described himself as not a good student in elementary school. He said the only subjects that really captured his interest were science and astronomy. He recalls, as a young child, drawing pictures of the solar system. Gibson stated in a NASA oral history interview, quote, I started out being president of my first grade class two years in a row. I think it's necessary to add one fact to the very generous and um, introduction uh, and description of my illustrious academic career. I was president of my first grade class two years in a row. <laughs> Now, had I accepted people's early judgment of my academic prowess, 
it would have been a different life for me. And so it is for all of us. The prime requirement for success is to have enough self-confidence to be persistent, to never, 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 never give up. Though Gibson improved his academic performance in high school, his interest in science remained, and he graduated from Kenmore Senior High School in Kenmore, New York in 1955. After high school, he earned his Bachelor of Science degree in engineering in 1959 at the University of Rochester. The choice was inspired by his father, who wanted his son to work at his marking devices company and thought the engineering skills would be a valuable addition to the business. Ed wanted to fly for the Air Force. But that hope was shot down by his bone condition that was then a disqualification for being a pilot. Unable to fly planes, he decided to pursue building them instead of joining his father's business after earning a bachelor's degree. Gibson went on to earn a Master of Science degree in engineering with jet propulsion option from the California Institute of Technology, Caltech in June 1960, and a Ph.D. in engineering with a minor in physics from Caltech in June 1964. While studying at Caltech, Gibson was a research assistant in the field of jet propulsion and classical physics. His technical publications are in the fields of plasma physics and solar physics. Gibson's childhood interest in astronomy and space never left him, and while in graduate school, he followed the Mercury and Gemini programs with great interest, never thinking he would have a chance to be involved in them. After completing graduate school, he took a job as a senior research scientist with the Applied Research Laboratories of Philco Corporation at Newport Beach, California, from June 1964 until moving to NASA. While at Philco, he did research in lasers and the optical breakdown of gases. It was while he was working at Philco that his wife, Julie, read him an article at breakfast one morning saying that NASA was looking for scientists who wanted to fly in space. Gibson joked, quote, I thought long and hard about it, and at 8 o'clock that morning applied. I had no qualms whatsoever. End quote. As mentioned previously, Gibson was selected as a scientist astronaut by NASA in June of 1965. He completed a 53-week course in flight training at Williams Air Force Base, Arizona, and earned his Air Force wings. Since then... He has flown helicopters and the T-38. In total, Gibson has logged more than 4,300 hours flying time, 2,270 hours in jet aircraft. Ed served as a member of the astronaut support crew and as Capcom for the Apollo 12 lunar landing, becoming the first from the scientist astronaut group to get a crew assignment of any kind. He also participated in the design and testing of many elements of Skylab. 
As part of his preparation for the Skylab program, Gibson studied solar physics, ultimately writing an introductory textbook on solar astrophysics titled The Quiet Sun. In addition, from the 1973 English edition published in the United States, there was a 1977 Russian edition of this book published in the Soviet Union by mere publishers. Gibson was the science pilot of Skylab 4, the third and final crewed mission to visit the Skylab space station. It launched in November 16, 1973 and concluded February 8, 1974. This was the longest crewed flight, 84 days, 1 hour, 15 minutes, in the history of crewed space exploration at that time. Here's Gibson on his Skylab experience. Well, the harder we work, the more efficient and confident you become. Soon you become to think of your space station up there. It's just your average three-bedroom home. It's so stable and it's so secure. In fact, you really don't think you're going to be flying at all. It doesn't feel that way. And you don't notice the difference between flying and being in a space station until you finally leave it. Matter of fact, you'd be content, as we would, to have stayed up there for a long period of time, for, for years, if we had friends and family along. Uh, maybe a good pizza pub. There's nothing foreign or nothing hostile about it. Gibson was accompanied on the record-setting 34.5 million mile flight by Commander Gerald P. Carr and pilot William R. Pogue. They successfully completed 56 experiments 26 science demonstrations, 15 subsystem detail objectives, and 13 student investigations during their 1,214 revolutions of Earth. They also acquired a variety of Earth resource observations data using Skylab's Earth Resources Experiments package camera and sensor array. Dr. Gibson was the crewman primarily responsible for the 338 hours of Apollo telescope mount operation, which made extensive observations of solar processes. Until the Soviet Union's Soyuz 26 broke the record in March 1978, Gibson and his Skylab 4 teammates held the world record for individual time in space. 2017 hours, 15 minutes, and 32 seconds. Gibson logged 15 hours and 22 minutes in three EVAs outside the Skylab orbital workshop. Here is Ed describing spacewalking. How many of you like to go outside on a spacewalk? <laughs> Not so many hands, is it? <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Let's all go up to the top of a tall building. 50 stories, maybe 100 stories, as we do. But now, let's open the window after you've looked out and we're as pleasant and relaxing. We'll now open the window and we'll take you out one by one to the end of a long springboard where we have a steel fist of Arnold Schwarzenegger going to grab you by your ankles and hold your head down. Now, intellectually, you'll know you're never fall. And even though you're at the same height as you were inside, you have to admit it feels a bit different. <laughs> well, on the space walk, you get that same feeling, just more of it. Head down, you glide over Earth at a very serene five miles a second. 
and the laws of Sir Isaac Newton give you full intellectual confidence that you're up in the state. But when you move away from the station and look down at Earth, 300 miles below, and feel or see nothing else around you, this little whisper seeps out of the back of your mind, suppose that Newton guy was just a little bit more. That last sentence was, suppose that Newton guy was just a little bit wrong. As of 2022, Gibson is the last surviving Skylab 4 crew member. Carr died in 2020 and Pogue died in 2014. Gibson resigned from NASA in December of 1974 to do research on Skylab solar physics data. As a senior staff scientist with the Aerospace Corporation of Los Angeles, California. Beginning in March of 76, he served for one year as a consultant to ERNO in West Germany on space lab design under the sponsorship of a U.S. Senior Scientist Award from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation. In March of 77, Gibson returned to the astronaut office candidate selection and training as chief of the science astronauts candidates. During his second tenure at NASA, Gibson had hoped to fly on another space station mission due to his experience on Skylab, but at the same time did not desire a space shuttle mission. He did serve as Capcom for STS-1, but Gibson ultimately decided to retire from NASA again on October 31, 1982, and began working for TRW. Gibson has received many special honors. He was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship and the R.C. Baker Fellowship at the California Institute of Technology. He received the Johnson Space Center Certificate of Commendation in 1970. He received the City of New York Gold Medal in 1974. Gibson, along with the rest of the Skylab astronauts, received the City of Chicago Gold Medal in 1974. Gibson received the 1974 FAI Yuri Gagarin Gold Medal. In 1976, he received the U.S. Scientist Prize from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, which provided funds to research in western Germany for a year. He received the Johnson Space Center Special Achievement Award in 1978. Gibson has also been presented with honorary doctorates of science from the University of Rochester and Wagner College in New York City, both in 1974. In 1974, President Nixon presented the Skylab 4 crew with the NASA Distinguished Service Medal. The American Astronautical Society's 1975 Flight Achievement Award was given to the Skylab 4 crew as well. Federation Aeronautic International awarded the Skylab 4 crew the De La Valls Medal and the V.M. Komarov Diploma for 1974. The Skylab 4 crew won the AIAA Haley Astronautics Award in 1975 for demonstrating outstanding courage and skill during their record-breaking 84-day Skylab mission. 
Gibson was one of the 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. In his personal life, Gibson is married to Julie Ann Volk of Tonawanda, New York. He has four children, Janet, born 1960, John, born 64, Julie, born in 68, and Joseph, born in 1971. from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 397 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab, the Astronauts, Part 2, Owen Garriott and Ed Gibson. Okay, one big announcement. Actually, I have a few announcements. This is a big one. As you may have noticed, we are coming up to 400 episodes of the podcast. If everything goes according to plan, episode 400 will be released on October 20th. As you may recall, I usually do something special when we reach these milestone episodes. And since this is such a major milestone... I want to try something different. So, in celebration of reaching this milestone, I want to have a live YouTube question and answer session. Believe it or not, I do have a YouTube channel. It's called Space Rocket History. You can easily access it by either of two ways. Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, look at the right side of the page directly below the orange donate button and the Patreon box. You will find the YouTube link there. It's actually a video. Now, you need to click the small SRH logo in the upper left corner of the video. Do not click anywhere else. (laughs) If you click somewhere else, the video will play. If you click on that little logo, then it will take you to my YouTube channel. So just click on that small logo, upper left corner. Don't click anywhere else. If you do, it's okay. You can watch the video, but you have to come back and click on that little left corner. Or... If that doesn't work for you, you can do a Google search using the term Space Rocket History on YouTube. When I did that search, my channel was the second result. Make sure when you get there to subscribe to my channel and click the notification bell so you will be notified when new stuff comes up. Currently, there is only one video on the channel. Feel free to watch it. It was a SpaceX launch back in 2017 that Mrs. SRH and I enjoyed. It was in the early morning. It seems like it was like 2.30 in the morning. I have a 
my question whether I will have any audience on YouTube since there are only 175 subscribers there. So please subscribe so I will know if you're even interested in this format. We, that is Mrs. SRH and I, plan to do the live video. It's scheduled for tentatively, tentatively scheduled for October 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Guess that would be 5 p.m. Pacific. We will be taking questions that you send us by email in advance of the video or by live chat during the video. So if you have a question for us, it would be great if you would email that now so you can go to the head of the line. This will also help us gauge interest because I really, you know, I was really hesitant about doing this because I didn't think it would work very well. But we're going to try it, and it's something different, and it is the 400th episode, and I think we need some kind of celebration for that. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible during that video. Okay, now that I have explained all that, this is what you need to do. We'll circle back to what you need to do. <laughs> Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Go ahead and email me your questions now. Just go to the email. Type it out if you have a question. It can be any question you want to ask. Okay. <laughs> Try not, not, not anything silly, but just any question you may have. My email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Mark your calendar and come to the live 400th episode celebration on YouTube. Okay. Continuing with the announcements, our next episode should be released by September 22nd. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 217 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. If you're so inclined, my Twitter handle is working again. It is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can also follow me on Facebook. And you can keep up with me on Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. Where, in addition to the episodes, I post some extra things occasionally. Had a few afterthoughts on this episode. Of course, I must apologize for my mispronunciations. If I had really struggled with, with saying Garriott instead of Garrett on this episode and the last episode I did as well. So I hope none of them slipped through because his name is Garriott, not Garrett. It's, it is hard. <laughs> I just go through it. It's tough. Mrs. SRH found a ton of mistakes when she checked through and listened to it. And it was about seven of them was me mispronouncing his name. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Sadly, the uh, Artemis did not launch last Monday. 
But I, I had a great time anyway. <laughs> I felt like I was part of the team. My friend John emailed me a couple of times while he was, remember John, he's in Houston, and he works for NASA. And he was at Mission Control. And while he was at his console in Mission Control, he sent me an email, even sent some pictures. But the best email I received was sent at 5.20 a.m. Central Time. And it said, quote, ready to roll and space rocket history is with us, in parentheses, on my cup. Then he attached a picture of his console with his coffee cup and the podcast logo was on the cup. I tell you what, that made my day. Even though it didn't launch, I was smiling all day over that. I want to thank John for doing that from the bottom of my heart. I sincerely appreciate that. I will share the picture with you on this episode. So to see it, you, you just go to the homepage, and we'll usually have three pictures with each episode, and you can see the pictures, and I'll share that picture with you right there on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. You know it's hard to go to the moon. It's a brand new, very complex rocket, and things are bound to go wrong. But I feel NASA will get it launched soon. Okay, on this episode, it was especially cool to me that Garriott was an electrical engineer. One of my kind. I love it. When the electrical guys make it to space. <laughs> Ed Gibson was so funny when he said he was elected president of his first grade class two years in a row. <laughs> I, I laughed. I'd heard that so many times. I laughed out loud even when I recorded it. So I had to re-record that. But uh, he had an important message, I thought. And it was about not giving up persistence and ultimate success and what a scholar he did become and an astronaut as well so mighty impressive my and when you feel a little discouraged i want you to think about that for those interested in the house progress uh really nothing has happened except the basement cracks have gotten a little bit bigger but mrs srh has an announcement (laughs) that I will let her share when it's time. I do not want to uh, take her glory away from her. (laughs) Okay, over the past fortnight, we received several donations and pledges and increases in pledges. And I would like to thank James B., who donated at the Starship level. Stephen M., from California, who donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. Paul K. donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. Christopher L. from Australia sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. Peter M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Mir ISS level. Galen A. from Vermont donated at the Vostok level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Daryl H. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. J.S. 
pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Eric G. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. DB increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mirror ISS level. Alex B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. And Mark N. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors have dropped to 244. That number is accurate and a little scary. It's a drop uh, of seven from last month. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 348 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. We had a good month in August, uh, finally. But quite frankly, this year has been a dog year for financial support. And it is lagging behind the previous years. So, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you are enjoying it, and you can afford it, this podcast has been running nine and a half years without commercial interruption. Please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you would like, you can donate by mail, which works great for me. Please use my new permanent address, which has been active for over a year now. If you don't know what that is, just email me and I'll give it to you. Email at spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. I am starting a new adventure. Well, partially new to me online teaching. I retired from classroom teaching in 2016 before Zoom was a necessary teaching tool. Now I'm going back to teaching, but with a virtual classroom. Hello, Zoom. I'll be teaching one of my favorite subjects, physical science. Yes, I'm going to have a learning curve with the tech integration, but I have a great support system and you all know who that is. (laughs) Now for the drawing. The winner will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jeff Reinhardt. Jeff Reinhardt, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks. To all 348 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. I want to publicly wish Mrs. SRH good luck on her new teaching endeavor. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Flickr, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. Hope to have episode number 398 posted by September 22nd. Don't forget your homework. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Go ahead and email me your questions now and mark your calendar and come to the live 400th episode celebration on YouTube. So long for now.